understood that righteousness was not something we conjure up or that we contribute. No, it's been given to us, gifted to us, imputed to us by faith. Here's what Luther said. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's open, uh, shall we, to the book of Romans. Either swipe or turn there in your Bibles. How many of you have ever gotten the knock on the door at your home from a neighborhood salesman only to open the door and look and they're not eye to eye with you, but they're a short little adorable six-year-old who is trying to peddle something? How many of you that's happened to? Little six-year-old solicitor. And it seems like as a marketer, that's either brilliant or that's cheating. (laughs) It's not fair. These little tykes are always selling cookies or candy or they're running laps. And sir, it's only a dollar if you'll sponsor me per lap, which ends up becoming about, I don't know, $10,000. Will you please help me neighbor with those big puppy dog eyes? Uh, If that's not called bribery, it's called fundraising. Uh, And fundraising is actually, it's become a worldwide multi-billion dollar industry. I was shocked to learn the number one fundraising website, GoFundMe, has raised $10 billion with a B uh, for a variety of different causes. Now, there's generally good and noble fundraising, and then, of course, there's poor and tasteless fundraising. Some of you have gotten the, the scam email that says, hey, I'm, I'm the king of Uganda. If you'll just send me $10, I will give you a million dollars in your bank. Just send me your bank account information and your social security, and we're good. Uh, now, of course, uh, whether fundraising is good or bad, depends on the methodology, but it also depends on how worthwhile or how important the cause is, the actual cause that you're giving to. Now, I start out with that information this morning because it may surprise you to learn that we as a church are going to study a 16-chapter fundraising letter that was written in the first century, and we're going to be studying it for the next at least 50 weeks together. But what we're going to see is that the method and the cause are both worthy and good, and arguably the most important thing that we could spend our money and our lives on. But this letter that we're going to study today and beginning today is so much more than merely a fundraising request. It's actually a full and sweeping explanation of the gospel. And it's one that will prove to make an indelible mark in your Christian life, as it has in the lives of countless saints for the last 2,000 years of church history. Uh, You saw some of those quotes on the opening video, but R.C. Sproul, the late and great R.C. Sproul, I had a chance in the last few weeks to go to his his facility, his church grounds, the ministry grounds there in Sanford, and R.C. Sproul said this. He said, I really do believe that if there's any one individual book out of the 66 in our Bibles, which God used to change lives more than any other, it is the book of Romans. Uh, It's happened in my life. When I was 17 years old and God had radically saved me from my sin and brought me from death to life, I opened the book of Romans and I saw that I was a sinner in need of salvation. And then kind of this crescendo of God's grace in Romans chapter 8 radically changed my life. 
uh, in the summer of 386 BC, that's not when I was born, uh, but uh, in the summer of 386 AD actually, uh, there was a 32-year-old teacher who walked into his garden and as the story goes, he was overwhelmed by his sexual desires, his passions that were enslaving him. And he sat down under a fig tree and as he was just weeping and overwhelmed, he suddenly hears the voice of what seemed to be a child nearby yelling over and over, pick up and read, pick up and read. Well, seeing that may be a Holy Spirit prompt, he went and found his Bible and he opened it to the book of Romans and his eyes landed on chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which say this on the screen, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. After that happened, here's what he said. He said, I neither wished nor heeded to read any further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if, it was as if a life of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And so thus, transformed by the word of God, specifically the book of Romans, this man, Augustine of Hippo, who we consider the father of the early church, he had been made new because of this book. A little bit over a thousand years after that, it was a passage of scripture from the book of Romans that revolutionized a medieval monk named Martin Luther and eventually led to what we know as the Protestant Reformation. What was the verse? It was right in front of you if you've opened to the book of Romans, chapter 1, starting in verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. When Luther understood that righteousness was not something we conjure up or that we contribute. No, it's been given to us, gifted to us, imputed to us by faith. Here's what Luther said. He said, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before this phrase, the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Luther would go on to affirm that the book of Romans is, he said, really the chief part of the New Testament, and it's truly the purest gospel. Well, about 200 years after Luther, a man, maybe you've heard of him, a man by the name of John Wesley, and he was reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And here's what John Wesley said, and I know it says that Martin Luther said this, but Indirectly, Martin Luther had an impact in John Wesley saying this. John Wesley said about a quarter before nine, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You see the impact that this book, the book of Romans, has had in various key men and women in church history. John Stott more recently said that it, Romans, remains a timeless manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. Uh, William Tyndale, uh, of course, instrumental in the translation of our Bibles, 
he urged, I love this, he urged his readers to memorize Romans, the entire thing, by heart. Uh, we have an, maybe an easier time memorizing the entire series called The Office, or maybe a movie. We know all the movie quotes. Well, Tyndale said, I want to urge you to memorize the book of Romans. And here's what he said. He said, no man verily can read it too oft or study it too well. The more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. I don't know if pleasanter is a word, but it is true. In fact, Francis L. Patton, who's the former president of Princeton, he said, the only hope of Christianity is in the rehabilitating of the Pauline theology. It's either back, back, back to an incarnate Christ in the atoning blood, or it is on, on, on to atheism and despair. Even John Knox said, Romans is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. Now, with that as an intro, you see the importance and almost the sense of, uh, of fear that I have as a pastor, the sense of awe, excitement, and unworthiness that, that we're going to approach or even try to attack an exposition of what I consider the most important book in our Bibles. It almost makes me want to shy away from it. We, we intended to teach through this in 2020, and then this little thing called COVID-19 happened, so we didn't get to it, and uh, so I'm quite excited, and it's a little bit daunting to open up this book. But as we do open the book, why was Romans written? Why did Paul initially write this book? And to understand that, you're already there, but I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. So Go ahead and, uh, and swipe or flip to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be reading starting in verse 17 until about verse 29. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what Paul says to the church in Rome. Romans 15, 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Paul, as we read that, Paul had been raising money for the struggling Jerusalem church, which, of course, had been persecuted. They were struggling. They were suffering. And he had raised money for them by going to the supporting Gentile churches. And now, most likely, writing from Corinth, which is in Greece, 
around the year AD 57, around the year 57, Paul had completed his third missionary journey. Now, because of that, what I'd like to do from this text is just note three key things that were kind of unfolding in the life of Paul around the time that he wrote this letter. So if you're taking note, uh, either snap a photo of this or jot this down, these three things. Number one, as we look at why Paul wrote this, first of all, Paul had ministered in the surrounding north and eastern regions. And at that time, he had faithfully preached the gospel so that in those areas, Christ's name was now known. Uh, We just read it, but Paul's focus was to preach Christ uh, where Christ's name had not yet been known or heard. He wasn't going to the places where people had already heard the gospel. And because they'd already heard the gospel, when you go again to share the gospel, they may have said, I've already heard that. And they become callous or indifferent to the good news of Jesus. So Paul says, from Jerusalem all the way to modern-day Albania, I have carried the gospel with beautiful feet to those who have not yet heard the name Jesus. So that's the first thing to note. Secondly, though, Paul now intended to venture westward to Spain, which was the furthest known coordinate to the west. Beyond that is the Atlantic. And so it was his intention to venture westward to Spain Why? To preach the gospel to unreached, unengaged Spanish peoples. So people in uh, the region that Paul had been preaching now had access to the gospel, meaning there there were viable churches. Those churches had been planted. Those churches were healthy for the most part. Uh, And yet what rubbed Paul the wrong way is that as he's doing ministry there, there's still uncharted territory. There's still places where Christ has not even been named yet. And so Paul's aim was to go and preach the gospel to the truly unreached or unengaged Gentiles. And to do that, that takes, it takes resources. Uh, you need a team. You need translators. You need time. You need means of travel. Uh, you would obviously need food, water, and shelter. And none of that's free. Uh, there's only so far you can get on prayer and faith. At a, at a certain point, like, we need food. We've got to be able to eat. So uh, Paul would often supplement his ministry work by doing tent making on the side. And this would help fund much of his missionary operation. But thirdly, I want you to jot this down. Paul is writing this because he sought to stop in Rome to visit, as well as to be supported by the Roman church in this future missionary endeavor. Now, what happened in the church at Rome? See, Paul, we know, was a Roman citizen from Acts 22-28. But we have no record of Paul ever visiting Rome prior to the writing of this letter. We don't have any record of Peter or any of the other apostles who planted a church in Rome. But what we do know is uh, is maybe a bit of a deduction. We know from Acts chapter 2 verse 10, Luke says, hey, there were visitors from Rome who were there at Pentecost who at least observed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And we're not really sure but they may have been some of those who received Christ, received the Spirit, and went back and founded a church in Rome. Uh, We're not sure about that, but we do know in the year uh, 49, for about five years until his death, the ruler Claudius had all of the Jews expelled from the city of Rome and had the government uh, decree that every Jew is supposed to leave. And that government decree actually caused a man named Aquila, who married a woman named Priscilla, that's not advisable, guys. I never would be interested in a woman named Milgram growing up, uh, but uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, and this couple had to leave Rome, and later they meet up with Paul 
And that is no doubt how Paul begins to hear of this incredible fellowship that was in a prominent city, probably the prominent city at the time. So Paul's goal may have been to set the church of Rome up as his future base of operations, kind of a a mission hub for his Western missionary work. The way that Antioch, uh, the church in Antioch, was a hub for his prior mission work. And I don't know if you know this, but we want to be a church that is a mission hub, a church planting hub that raises up church planters, that raises up missionaries. And our mission is win, disciple, and send. It is not steal, huddle, and hide. That is not our mission. Our mission is to win people to Christ, to disciple them in Christ, and to send them, to send them to the ends of the earth. And that was Paul's maybe intention for the church in Rome. So even though the primary purpose of writing this letter was first century fundraising, this would have taken a lot of time and a great expense for him to write this. Let me just explain why that would have taken so much time and so much expense. See, Paul would have employed a scribe. Uh, and the fancy term for this, to impress you, is a word called an amanuensis. Okay? The amanuensis, we're just going to say scribe. Okay, We'll just call him a scribe. And the scribe, as Paul spoke out loud, the scribe would sit down and would capture and transcribe his words onto papyrus. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's what I do when I pull my phone out and I try to do voice to text. And I say, uh, give me directions to the supermarket. And then it says, calling Joyce. And you go, no, I don't want you to call Joyce. So we know that this is a failure. um, And that's not exactly what was happening. I want you real quickly, you're already in Romans, you're already in 15, just glance over to chapter 16 or swipe over. Look at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 22. Notice who's speaking in the first person. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. It was Tertius of Iconium who was Paul's scribe, his amanuensis. We need to give Tertius a hug in heaven. There's a hug in heaven awaiting him for the hard work that he did in transcribing this uh, or uh, writing down what Paul dictated to him. Now, most likely, Tertius used papyrus from Egypt laid in front of him with black or brown ink. And the volume that we call Romans would have been an estimated 35 feet long, 35 feet of glued sheets rolled together onto a stick. Now, we have about 14,000 letters in total from antiquity, not just uh, biblical writing, but 14,000 letters in total, mostly copies. There's some originals historically. And private letters sent from a citizen to another citizen, those tended to range from about 18 to 200 words. Now, there's some above-average guys, Cicero, He averaged about 300 words. Seneca, a little bit more wordy. Uh, He wrote around 995 words per letter. The Apostle Paul, you know he's a preacher, and so he had a little bit more to say. And his epistles averaged 1,300 words. But this letter, Romans, that we're about to study, has 7,100 words. So this would have been a great expense and great time to write. What made Paul so passionate that he would write such a long, expensive letter to a church he had never been to that was gathering in the most important city in the known world at that time. Why? In a word, the gospel. Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Spain. Paul wanted the church in Rome to assist him in gospel work. And thus he shares with them not just what he wants to do, but what message he has to bring. He's almost saying, hey, I want to invoke confidence in the ministry and the mission work 
that I'm entering into. And so I want to demonstrate the gospel in a very clear, systematic way. So you can get behind what I'm doing and know the message that I'm proclaiming. Here is this message. It is the gospel. And so let's turn to the opening page. Now go back with me to Romans chapter 1, to the opening page of the book of Romans. And look how the gospel takes center stage, even from the opening verse. Look at verse 1 with me. Again, from the ESV, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, here it is, for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. He says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. He says in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then, of course, we just read it, verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you'll see the gospel throughout this letter. Now, from the Bible Project, Tim Mackey points out that the gospel is the outline for the entire book of Romans. Uh, He says this, Mackey says that the gospel in chapters 1 through 4 reveals God's righteousness, that in chapters 5 through 8, we see the gospel creates a new humanity. In chapters 9 through 11, we see the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. And then in chapters 12 through 16, the gospel unifies the church. And that is a great outline. Well, at the conclusion of the letter that we call Romans, I'm not going to have you turn there because you've been already turning back and forth. But notice on the screen what Paul says. He says, now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You see, Romans is Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work, but it's on the greatest subject. Folks, if there's anything we should be spending our time, our talents, our treasure, our thoughts, our attention, our energy, our focus, our mornings, our nights, our time in conversation with our children, with our friends, with our unsafe family, with our coworkers, it is that singular message of hope that Paul wrote in the book of Romans. It is what? The gospel. Now, uh, what I'd like us to do is look at one particular verse, and next week we're going to actually exposit verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. But let's look at one particular verse, and let's kind of make some application points for us here in 2021. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 5. And I said this to the first service. You're probably going to highlight the entire book of Romans, but it's going to be hard to like kind of set some verses aside, but I really think you should highlight or underline verse 5. He says, Through whom, through Jesus... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This was Paul's purpose. He had received grace and he had received apostleship, that is both the mercy of Christ as well as the mission of Christ, to bring about what? He says the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among where? What does your text say, church? Among where? Among all the nations. Now, that word for nations, if you circle that word, that word is not referring to France or Great Britain or Mexico or Canada or anyone a part of the United Nations. I know we're used to saying the word nation, and we think, oh, yeah, nation is where there's a, uh, maybe a border wall or there's a river or a lake or a, a, you know, some type of body of water that distinguishes it between one nation to another. That's not the idea, and that's not the concept that's used in the New Testament when we see nation. The Greek word is the Greek word ethnos, and this is what it means. It means actually more like a people group 
that's united by, and this isn't exhaustive, but by something, by kinship, by history, beliefs, or even by language. And so when we think about a, a nation in the New Testament, we want to think less about a national border uh, like the United States, but think about the United States. We have within the U.S., a variety of people groups. We have native people groups. We have people groups who have come in through Ellis Island and they've established uh, themselves in different cities. There are people groups who, you know, are a blend of different people groups that are new people groups. And so when we think of ethnos, we, or nations, we need to think of it in those terms. So I want us to jot down three things, three ways that we can apply the book of Romans and this idea of where Paul is coming from in desiring their support in bringing the gospel to Spain. Three important application points for us. Please jot these down. Number one, the gospel is for all people. Amen? That's a message that is very timely today. The gospel is for all people. See, the glorious good news is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And that is you, and that is me. And there is no ethnic people group beyond the reach of his grace. So that means for us, any discrimination, racism, or ethnic division, let's call it what it is, it's sin. Within the scriptures, we see sin. We see ethnic racism. We see Jews looking down on Samaritans and Gentiles. We see Greeks considering anyone outside of the realm of their democratic ideals as barbarian. When we look around the world today, many people groups are mistreated or they're persecuted simply because of their skin color but oftentimes because of their ethnic background. But I love that the church of Jesus Christ has no caste system. Isn't that wonderful? That there's no Jew nor Greek, that we are united together in one new body. And Jesus commands us as this new body to go and make disciples, here's that word again, of all nations. And when we look in Revelation 7-9, we get this glorious glimpse of a day I can't wait for, where it says there will be a multitude that John observes from every nation, there's that word, every ethnic people group, tribe, and tongue. Uh, in this glorious expanse of God's people, there is a representative from every people group. So when we look around the world today at the are approximately 7,400 people groups that are considered unreached, we realize, wow, the gospel is for all people. It's not just for one particular uh, type of person. It's for all people. The gospel is for all. Jesus died for the Pashtun of Afghanistan and for the Hakka of China. The gospel is not too short to save the Uyghur people or the Rajput or the Khmer of Cambodia or the Ansari of India. So we can be encouraged today that the gospel is for all people. If you're here today like, well, this is like, this is only for that type of people. No, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ dying in our place taking the punishment that we deserve, bearing the wrath of God so that we could be made new. That good news is available for you this morning, no matter what your ethnicity or your background. Great news. Well, secondly, that leads us to our second point, and that is that the church's mission, our mission, corporately, must expand beyond simply reaching the lost, which is a good first step, but it must go beyond that to providing access to the gospel. What's the difference? This was very insightful for me uh, as a part of being a part of Engage Global in the last few years. And here's my point. Paul could have camped out in Corinth and just pastored many people. Uh, he could have done that. He certainly could have maintained a long tenure going around and just encouraging uh, and equipping the existing churches and just strengthening 
the established churches to reach more lost people in their region. He had already established many churches. Elders were raised up. Most of these were healthy churches. He could have just made the circuit every few years, every few months, and just done that kind of work. But do you see why he didn't? Why didn't he do that? Because there's a significant difference between reaching lost people who have access to the gospel and going to pioneering regions where Christ is not even named. You and I know this. We live in a very reached culture. In other words, we have access to the gospel. You and I can go to the bookstore. Are there any Christian bookstores left? I don't know. We can go to the bookstore, we can go online, and we can get a men's 42-year-old devotional Bible, right, for, for white-collar workers. Ladies, you can go and you can pick up the women's stay-at-home mom devotional Bible for moms in their early 20s. Like, they have every single type of uh, specific Bible translation, um, and it's available to us. We have access. But do you know that there are places on the globe today where the name of Christ, there's not even a word in their language uh, that is yet discernible to understand the word gospel or the name Jesus. In fact, it's estimated, here's some stats, out of the just under 8 billion people alive in the world today, 3.23 billion of them live in unreached people groups who have little or no access to the gospel. According to the Joshua Project, there's actually approximately 17,400 46 unique people groups in the world. And as I just mentioned, 7,400 of them plus are considered unreached. And by the way, that's 41% of the world's population. Now the vast majority, 85% of these least reached groups exist in what we call the 1040 window. And here's what really rubs me is that less than 10% of missionary work is done in the 1040 window. So I have friends that want to move to this part of Europe or that part of Western culture, it's like, great, yeah, we need to have more planners and more churches and, and reach more lost people, but let's begin to send people to the unreached area, to the place where very little mission work is done. And so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, there's lost people in each and every generation, so churches are needed to win, disciple, and send, but providing access is something that Paul was seeking to do, and it's something that we as a church need to be a part of, and thankfully, by God's grace, we are. Uh, our mission focus at Shoreline is church planting and unreached people groups. That's where we have unashamedly made our laser focus as a, a group that, you know, as a church that supports outside missions. So third point I want you to jot down. We talked about the gospel in a grander way, and then we looked at the body of Christ. Now let's look at individually. What is our job, our role? Well, every Christian, number three, has a unique and needed role in global gospel work. Don't turn there, but at the conclusion of the book of Romans, I'll give you a spoiler alert, it's gonna, it's gonna be 52 weeks before we get to it. So uh, at the end of the book of Romans, we get a list of 29 people and 24 of them, Paul calls them by name. And here's just a little insight. Not all of these are pastors or people of prominence. Paul is writing to men, to women, to moms, sisters, relatives, slaves, and servants. And these people are all referenced and greeted by Paul. And he's greeting them because they were instrumental in supporting Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So when we talk about advancing the gospel globally, you and I have a couple different roles to play. And I'd love for you to jot these down. Now, don't thank me later. These are not me. These are completely ripped off from Engage Global, and it's that good. Okay, so let me reference what Engage Global talks about. These are different roles that we can play. 
Okay, some of us, number one, are goers. Now, let me just pause on that point. We are all called to go and make disciples, amen? That, that's part of the Great Commission. We don't just go, well, that's just for people in Kenya. They, they can go, we can send them, that's only for them. We're all called to go. We're, all, in a sense, all on mission. But here's what I mean by goers. What I specifically mean by a goer is someone who packs their family up and they cross a, like a physical barrier to go into a new place or they cross a language barrier or they cross great cultural barriers or all of those and they have to obtain visas and they have to travel to uh, an extended part of the world with beautiful feet to bring the good news. That's what I mean by goers. And not all of us are goers. But I do want to say some of you, especially young people, who you've been praying about your future, you're open to maybe missions, maybe ministry, maybe college, you're not sure what God has for you next, but there's a stirring and a desire. We, we want to talk to you. We want you to be raised up and sent out. And that kind of brings us to our second thing. This is where many of us are called to be senders. Uh, that doesn't take away from our need to go and preach the gospel. We know, well, I don't, I don't do that. I just send. No, we, we all take the gospel. But some of us specifically send. And that's where we use a variety of resources to send and support those who go. Uh, I didn't say this in first service. Pastor Mike and his family are supported by us as a church and by a variety of different churches and families who are actively participating in sending. Sending not only him to the work he's doing, but the other missionaries that he is supporting. So uh, all of us can be, in a sense, senders. Here's one that really encouraged me and blew my mind, is that we can be welcomers. I thought this was fascinating. What is a welcomer? A welcomer is someone who realizes, wait, the nations, the ethnic people groups that God loves are not just overseas, but some are right at our doorstep. So I'm going to intentionally look around my community for maybe international students, maybe migrant workers, maybe refugees and travelers. And so we can embrace the nations right here in our community with hospitality and service. So when we do that, our hope is to build relational bridges so that we can share the love of Christ with the nations here in our backyard. We have a, our family has a favorite Thai place uh, locally, and we were so excited to make this our normal, frequent place, not only because incredible Pad Thai, um, but because we thought, oh, we're going to be welcomers. And then we found out they're already Christians. We were like, man, we, we missed it. We were too late, but we still love their Pad Thai. Uh, and so we can all be welcomers, but third, or fourthly, we can all be prayers. That means that we intercede, we support the global gospel work through intercession. And we can certainly all be a part of that. And one thing I'd love to see one day is to meet someone in heaven who says, I am the fruit of the prayer that Shoreline Church would intercede for on those occasions that you flashed those people groups and those stats and then you turned in prayer and I'm fruit from your intercession. I would love to meet someone that day and indeed we will. And even Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to what? To send out laborers into his harvest. And so we get to be a part of gospel global work. Well, church history does record for us that Paul indeed did arrive in Rome and he was sent by them to Spain. He preached the gospel in Spain for about two years. And then after that, he returned to Rome and soon thereafter was beheaded by Caesar Nero for his Christian faith, for the gospel. 
And so my prayer for us as we open up this incredible book and spend the next year plus studying it, and as you, even this week, begin to dive into Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, as we talk through these things with our men and our women's groups this week, my prayer is that we as a church would follow in Paul's courageous footsteps. Unswerved by the threat of persecution, and folks, it's coming. The threat of persecution is at our doorstep. And so that we, like Paul, would be unswerved by that threat. That we would, like Paul, have our hands to the plow and not look back. We'd look forward. That we, like Paul, would have our lives transformed by the finished work of Christ and that we may, by the grace given to us, be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God for the sake of his name among all the nations, even here uh, to the ends of the earth. That's my prayer for us as we begin this incredible series. Amen? Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for this glorious book. We know all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for training, for correction, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But Lord, as we look at this specific book, we realize uh, its uniqueness within the canon, Lord. And we know that this is going to bring great impact to our church corporately and to our lives individually. So we're excited about it, Lord. We pray that uh, we would lean in and, and do our best to memorize, to study, to grow, and to learn. Lord, we thank you for the impact this book has had throughout church history on, on men and women of the church. And we know it's going to have a great impact in our lives. So help us, Lord to look forward, to advance the gospel, to not shrink back in fear, no matter the threat, that we would stand firm, even with the the spiritual threat of Satan, Lord, that we would stand firm because you are our mighty fortress. So we thank you, we worship you, and we trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.